lies within the trails we ride. You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author whose mission is to help people achieve a deeper connection with their horses through his transformational training program. Just because he knows that you know. Hey everyone and welcome back to the Journey On Podcast. I'm your host Warwick Schiller and today we have a very, very special guest. Uh, her name's Tanya Kindersley and she's a writer and horsewoman. She lives on the northeast coast of Scotland and she's one of those people that can write in such a way that, you know, she could describe what she had for breakfast and it would seem like poetry. Uh, she writes that way and even more so she talks that way. So I, I'm really looking forward to interviewing her because she has a just a wonderful turn of phrase. I love her accent. And I just love the way this lady looks at life. So let's see if we can get Tanya on the phone here. Good morning, Tanya. How are you? I'm very, very happy to be speaking to you all the way from Scotland. Actually, it's probably not morning there. It's probably afternoon there, isn't it? It is afternoon, yes. Mm. And how's everything in lovely Scotland this afternoon? Well, the amazing, I'm looking out of my window now, and I cannot even tell you how serene it is. We've got the lovely... Late afternoon sky. It's very still. We've uh, the storms have passed, and uh, I've been down in the field with my horses in what I call the place of peace, uh, which is where my red mare kind of goes into her most mindful, rooted, still, calm place of serenity. So, on a literal level, everything in Scotland couldn't be more beautiful. And it's that kind of slightly weird thing where I'm very conscious that we're living in these incredibly strange times. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm working on dealing with all that. And yet in my immediate world, you know, we're just surrounded by beauty and stillness and peace. So that, you know, it's, uh, how shall I say, very good and sometimes very bad. And I'm just, you know, surfing those waves. Yeah, that. They are some strange times we're living in. How uh, how have these strange times been affecting you? Like, is it how much different is your life, say, during coronavirus, different from how it is normally? Well, at the beginning, it was very different because um, we really couldn't see anyone. Our lockdown was very strict, and and um, so it, I felt very dislocated from my community. I'm very dug into my local community here, and I couldn't drive down the valley and. I work with a charity that uses horses to help wounded veterans. And that's a really big part of my life. And they're my, you know, it's a big crew, uh, both of horses and humans. And it was, and then it was a matter of perception. So you were allowed to go to the shop, you know, because obviously everyone had to get food, but you were very much encouraged not to go often. So instead of popping down to the shop and having a lovely chat with the ladies there, it became a sort of quite a frightening thing because was it, what if I was carrying the virus and then someone got it from me and gave it to Auntie Maud? So all these really lovely, normal parts of one's everyday life that one took for granted suddenly became something like like something out of a bit of a, you know, a scary movie. And everybody's typhoid Mary. And you, I'd find myself getting quite cross with people if they didn't do proper social distancing. And I'm the kind of person, normally, if I see strangers in the street, I kind of grin madly at them. And I suddenly found myself looking at them thinking, 
you know, why aren't you wearing your mask? And I thought, my God, that how quickly one's perceptions of other humans can change because there's this huge thing completely beyond our control that's kind of raging around the world and has, you know, has no face and has no conscience and has no end. So I had to work very hard because I don't like seeing other human beings as threats. I normally see them as, you know, lovely, happy members of the human family. Uh, so, and it made you very conscious of all the little ordinary things, you know, that you take for granted. I mean, for a long time, we weren't allowed to drive anywhere. And I suddenly really wanted to go and look at the hills. And I couldn't look at the hills. And I minded about that. Uh, anyway, luckily, all the horse life goes on as normal. And, and obviously, they can't read the papers. So they became this oasis of authenticity and, you know, the truth of the present moment. And also, I have to be my best self for them. I mean, that's my, I don't have to, that's what I like to do for them. I don't like to give them all my crap. So they're a very good discipline. They're a very good emotional discipline. You know, I didn't want to bring a huge amount of jangles down to the field and upset my red mare. So I then started to see the whole thing as a kind of emotional boot camp. And I really got good at processing emotions because I, with the coronavirus, I found if you didn't process a difficult emotion the minute you had it, it would get out of control and you'd find yourself shouting at people on Twitter. And I thought, I do not want to be that person. I mean, it's funny, isn't it, how you find something good in something not good. So I've, I think... Uh, I feel like I've had a sort of crash course in emotional processing and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But it's I think that's been a good thing, both for my human life and for my horse life. It's a very long answer to your question, isn't it? I'm sorry about that. <laughs> well, you know what? The th the, I love reading your writing because when I, I read your writing, I listen to it in your voice, oh. firstly. But you also talk like you're right. You have this flowing, <laughs> eloquent way of talking about stuff. So, it's, yeah, it's, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. So the horses are helping you a lot with that. Do you want to – let's maybe back up a bit and tell yeah. us about your life with horses. Where have, You've always been around horses, haven't you? I grew up with horses because my dad was a steeplechase jockey and then a racehorse trainer. So by the time I came along, he, he'd retired from riding, and he was training horses. So thoroughbreds were pretty much my, probably my first memory was going out in the dawn. It was, um, jump racing in England takes place mostly in the winter. So, you know, it would be pitch dark and freezing cold, and um, I just followed dad out into the yard like a little puppy. And I remember pottering around in the, stables it was at that lovely moment you go into the stable and you turn the light on and there's that blinking as they wake up and um they were such gentle giants and I just spend time with them and walk under their tummies and give them their feed and that was my love of the thoroughbred right there these these just extraordinary athletes and you think they're race fit uh and yet they were the gentlest creatures I'd ever known and then there was a lot of pony life and showing and it was it was you know it was all very competitive the the pony yard was in competition with the racing yard so if we won more stuff than they did they'd all get really cross it's really interesting to me now 
because that idea of winning has just completely gone. But so I was very competitive, very tough. My dad was very physically brave. There was a lot of premium on doing things that scared you and a lot of cross country, you know, all that kind of stuff. Real, a huge amount of fun. And then my life completely changed and there were lots of, my poor mum, lots of divorces and not really a home for a long time. So I went away from horses and I became very urban. And the only connection I had with horses was I just watched the racing and have these wonderful memories of that extraordinary childhood. And then my dad died and that was really oceanic. It was a much bigger shock than I thought it would be. I just thought he'd run his race. He was 80 years old. He was ready to go. Um, but it felt like the world had turned upside down. And I, I found it very hard to deal with. And I suddenly thought, about a year after he died, I thought, I know, I'll go back to horses and I'll get a thoroughbred and then I will have that precious memory with me and I'll be able to, I had this plan that I would ride out into the Scottish hills with carrying my dad with me and that I'd sing the Irish songs that he used to sing to me when I was a little girl sitting on his knee. And I just thought this was the best plan ever. And at the time, a friend of mine had an ex-racehorse who'd gone for polo and she was hopeless at polo and she'd been pretty bad at racing. And I happened to be staying with him and I told him all this and he said, oh, well, you know, take that red mare. So I did. And I thought, you know, I haven't had a horse for 30 years, but that's fine. I, I could sit on a horse before I could construct a sentence. It'll all come back. And I got her up to Scotland and she took one look at me and she literally shook her head. <laughs> she started shaking her head so badly. I thought she had a brain tumour. I really did. And she didn't want to ride out into the hills. She didn't. She hated the woods. She had no interest in the songs. She didn't want to be part of my sentimental journey. So she started rearing and she had an incredible signature move, which was going downhill backwards at top speed. And she spooked at everything. She wouldn't walk over puddles. And I was in, I can feel it now as I'm telling you. I was in a place of such shame and such humiliation. I mean, talk about expectation management that I'd had this whole dream. And she just said no. And uh, <laughs> there was a night, and you know this story, I've told it a million times. It's my favorite story, really. I was sitting in my room in the shame, in the humiliation, um, literally crying tears of despair. And I Googled how to have a happy horse. And through a series of links, the internet took me to you. And I thought, oh, okay. This bloke sounds like he knows what he's talking about. Also, I love the fact that you were an Aussie because I thought that I'm going to get no nonsense from this fella. He'll just, you know, that good old Aussie, no crap. Let's just get stuff done. And that's what we did at the beginning. And suddenly we could get stuff done. She stopped rearing and she stopped reversing downhill. And the journey went on. And then, of course, you had your epiphany. And at about the same time, I think Jane Pike kind of galloped into my life who's someone I know, you know, you work with and, and does all the mental side of the horsemanship. So then we started moving towards what I can only call the super woo. <laughs> so, super woo. So, you know, we can't fight the woo. And then I, I invented, I took all your principles and I took Jane's ideas 
and I ended up thinking much more important than all the winning stuff and the, you know, the being number one and the silver cups and all the stuff I'd grown up with. Actually, what I wanted was I wanted to connect with my horse on a profound level. So we <laughs> we spent and do spend huge amounts of time just standing in our Scottish field, breathing and connecting and feeling each other on an atomic level. And I think of how I'm made of the ancient remnants of exploded stars and so is she. And I sort of feel myself tiptoeing up to the very, very edge of the species barrier and just peering across. And she stands there doing all the things that X-ray horses aren't supposed to do and all the things that red mares aren't supposed to do. And she's carved out of the Scottish air. You know, she's, it's, she's like a sort of extraordinary statue from ancient Greece. And um, that's, I christened that the place of peace. So that was your idea, essentially, about connection and focus. And, and then with a little bit of Jane's idea of letting energy flow through one, which is an idea I really like. There's a paradox in this stillness because we're so still when we do this. And bear in mind, this is, this is an ex-racehorse in the middle of, I mean, she's essentially, she's got about 30 acres she can wander off into. And she doesn't have a halter on. Um, so there we are, completely still, completely connected. But there's this in incredible feeling of movement as you're in the stillness because you've opened yourself up. Well, we, I, have opened myself up to let the energy flow through. So it's a huge opening. And yet it's done in absolute immobility. And um, sounds quite good, actually, doesn't it? When I talk about it like that, <laughs> you, you, there was a, about about a minute and a half ago. You said a line in there that I have to put in the show notes. This is going to be when I put this on social media or whatever. I'm going to say, and I'm going to put that quote. And it was the one leading up to where you said you peering across the species barrier. Yeah, yeah, that was. That was worthy of a New York Times best-selling author, right there. That was, that was, <laughs> Thank you. That was the stuff. I was mesmerized. I actually uh. wrote the time down so I can refer back to it later on. That was a that was a paragraph. Whoa! Hit me right here in the feels. I tell you, that was very very cool. Oh, that's so lovely. Well, it, you know, it is the thing I thought at the beginning that I could kind of think like a horse, and I'm very conscious now that we are separate species but there is this beautiful thing where you just do walk up to that edge and I and I sometimes think of it it's it's a little bit like I'm just looking across a canyon into another country and I can see it I probably can never quite visit it but I can see it and I can have a sense of it and I tell if you told me eight years ago I'd have said something like that. I'd have said you were crackers. <laughs> but, but, you know, who, who knows where the road takes us? And that's where it's brought me. You know, a minute ago you said what you said, then I started into what I can only describe as super woo. You, <laughs> yes. know, so you, can't, you can't fight the woo. <laughs> Looking back, do you, could you ever in previous times picture yourself being into super woo? I was, <clears throat> it's such a good question. I think, I mean, it, 
I think I skirted around the edges of it. One of the lines that I've always loved the most is in Hamlet, which is, there is more in heaven and earth than is dreamt of in your philosophy, Horatio. And uh, that always spoke to me. That line sung to me. That sung, it sung a song. And I was very interested. This is going to sound a little bit, a little bit uh, wafty, but I was very interested in Jung when I was a young woman in my 20s. And he was pretty super woo. I mean, he, he was pretty nuts, really. But he, he had some very interesting ideas about things like the collective unconscious. So he believed that all humans are connected through a sort of amazing group unconscious. And I love that idea. And there's, there's no way you can prove that. That's So I was half a strict rationalist. I liked empiricism. You know, I liked facts. Um, I was very invested in the intellect you know I went to university and I was always top of the class and I liked that that was part of my self-definition and yet these rather nebulous interesting ideas were calling to me and I think I resisted it for a long time because those kind of ideas are quite scary you know they're big they're sort of they're taking you into the unknowable they're taking you into the purely theoretical. And that's a place that has no limits. And yet, I'm a writer. And I'm, you know, creativity is the thing that makes me most excited and most passionate. And the whole point about creativity, and the imagination is it has, if you, if you want to go into it all the way, you have to accept that there are no limits to that, either. So, that's why I hesitated when you asked that question, because I, I think I've always been half and half. I've been Dr. Doolittle, the push me, pull you. You know, I'm, I'm half brought into the very rational world, the provable world. And I'm half drawn to the numinous world. But actually, one of the things I talk about all the time with horses and with writing is balance. And maybe that's a good balance. Maybe, you know, maybe you can have one foot in both. Maybe you can. Um, so tell us about your, you just mentioned the writing. Tell us about your writing. So you have, you have made it to the point to where you are at some point in time were a New York Times bestselling author. What's been your, what's been your writing journey? Did you, did you want to be a writer? Did you fall into writing? How did all that come about? Um, it was, yeah, it was Sunday Times bestseller. I'd love to be on the New York Times. Um, that, that. Oh, Sunday <laughs> Times. Yeah, so. I thought it was New York Times. New York, New York Times is harder because, um, being a success in America is really tough. But, uh, yeah, when I was little, first of all, I wanted to be a three day eventer. And then I just, I wasn't brave enough. I mean, you, man, you've got to be courageous to do that. Uh, then I went completely opposite way and wanted to be an actress wasn't good enough and got rejected by all the drama schools but since I was about 13 I'd just been writing and I don't know why the, the, we were not a literary family my dad famously you didn't give him a book because he already had one <laughs> he just he read the sporting life and the racing post and that was it but anyway somewhere in it in my childhood I fell in love with words so I started writing mostly for myself and then things got very dodgy, but um, my mum's second marriage failed and she didn't have any money. And I'd read somewhere about a novelist who'd saved her husband from bankruptcy by writing a best-selling novel. 
And I was literally 14 and I thought, well, I can do that. So that was how I started. And I, I sort of never stopped. I just went on scribbling and scribbling and scribbling. And then when I came out of university, it was the 80s. And there was a ton of money sloshing about. And they, the publishers just would buy anything in those days. And honestly, I'm not being falsely modest. The, the early books I wrote were really very, very, very bad. I was doing my apprenticeship in public. But because it was the 80s and because everyone was just throwing money around, they bought my book. And so I wrote three rotten ones, which I don't regret now because they, you know, it's only by making mistakes that you learn. And luckily, nobody remembers them now. And then I wrote a few that I was pretty proud of. Then um, the thing happened, which happens so often in publishing is the accountants come in every so often and they look at the bottom line and I was not losing them money, but I wasn't making them money. So they hoped I'd go to six figures and I only ever got to five. You know, I got to sort of 40,000 copies and they want you to make the jump to 400,000 and I never made the leap. So basically I got sacked. My agent left me and I was in the wilderness and that was pretty tough. And so then I moved to nonfiction. That was when I had the Sunday Times bestseller. And I thought, oh, I'm back in the game. You know, it's all going to be fabulous. And uh, then pretty much the same thing happened all over again. So I had to reinvent myself. And I now uh, do an entrepreneurial model, which is that I write all the books that London publishers would turn their nose at. So I write books about my horses. I write books about this journey because I was so excited about what I learned from you and uh, what I learned from my red mare. I wanted everyone to know about it. But if you showed that to a London publisher, they'd fall over laughing. So I just put them out myself on Amazon. And I started a red mare page. And uh, I also now teach writing. So basically, I do lots and lots of different jobs all around the written word and all around my passion for the written word. But I'm not stuck in that, you know, that, that awful sort of old school system where you have to hit certain benchmarks and you're constantly being judged on things which as I get older and I move a little bit towards the woo, I don't think are very important. So funny enough, um, in the old days, if I'd said to you, yeah, I was on the Sunday Times bestseller list, I would have a real shimmy of pride. And now it was lovely for that younger self. And of course, it felt like something really important, and it, but it's very much an external validation. What I get now is uh, somebody wrote to me the other day, I've been writing something about the Red Mare and the Place of Peace. And somebody said, oh, I was really worried about my own mare. And, you know, I felt we didn't have a connection and I didn't know what to do. And I tried your idea and it worked. Now, that's one person that's, you know, that isn't five stars in the Sunday Times. That isn't it. I'm not ranked. No public. There will be no public acknowledgement. It's one human being. But I bet you have this with your group. It's all it takes. You get one message like that and you think my life means something. You know, today I've achieved something because I've touched one human being and made their life a teeny tiny little bit better. And that's, as you get older, I think that's what becomes more important. 
Um, you know, it's not so much about the ego, although that's always there. Um, it's more about just adding a little bit of something to the sum total of human happiness. And, and that makes me sound very saintly. And of course, I am secretly a bit of a saint. But <laughs> it's actually, it's not that at all, because that's how I get my, you know, satisfaction. That's how I get my happiness now. So it's a very different journey um, from what I set out on. And it's actually, it's, a, it's quite parallel to the horse journey because with the, I wanted to win prizes with the books, just like I wanted to win prizes with the horses. And now it's much more about the thing itself rather than the existential stamp on your passport. Does that make sense? Oh, oh, totally. I just recently went, oh, probably about a month ago, I went to a three-day what was called a men's emotional resilience training. And so it was, uh, so the guy that, that led it, he's a former combat soldier. He spent a couple of years traveling around with Tony Robbins, like being on stage with Tony Robbins, doing that sort of stuff. Uh, he's done a lot of grief work because he had a, a his brother passed away and there was a lot of grief around that. Mm. The last couple of years he spent, he's done a lot of work with Gabor Mate. I don't know if you know who Gabor Mate mm. is. He's one of the world's leading addiction experts. So this guy is he's pretty well-rounded sort of a sort of a fellow. And he uh, ran this retreat for the weekend and there was seven of us in the retreat. Uh, you know, like one guy was a fireman, so a U.S. fireman. So, you know, they call them first responders here. So, you know, in England or, you know, the U.K., the first one to the scene of an accident yep. is the ambulance. Well, here it's the fireman. So this guy, he's basically an ambulance guy, you know, so he sees all the bad stuff mm, mm, mm. and has to be able to block that out. There was one guy in the, the group who was a former UN hostage negotiator. Wow. So it was a, you know, it was a pretty diverse sort of a group. And it was, and, I, and I've been, you know, I've been seeing therapists and doing all sorts of things for a number of years now. I got more out of this three days than the last three years of stuff. But, and so the whole model the weekend was based on was this book called Warrior Magician Lover King. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's kind of like, you know what a Myers-Briggs test is? Yeah, I've done them a few times. Okay, so it's kind of like that. And so each one of these um, has a purpose. So mm -hmm. the, the lover part is the empathy, compassion part. The magician part is the, the way you kind of half what you are, the, the right, wrong, very black and white, got to add up sort of thing. Mm. The warrior part is the doer of deeds, but the king part, he is the overseer of it. He has the quest. And each one of these parts has a shadow side. Mm -hmm. So if you, don't, if you get it wrong, that's what happens. So the, the shadow of the lover is either depression or addiction. Mm. Okay. The shadow of the magician is tyrant or you are passive aggressive the shadow of the warrior is you either a sadist or a masochist and the shadow of the king is the prince mm -hmm. so the king does things for the good of others the mm -hmm. prince does things for external validation which is exactly what you said a minute ago and this whole weekend was about how back before the industrial revolution when we lived in villages or we lived in tribes sort of thing there was a rite of passage into manhood mm. and that rite of passage changed your thinking from doing things for external validation and doing things for the good mm. of the the tribe or the whole the collective sort of thing 
And basically this whole this whole book basically says that these days men do not have that. We're all a bunch of adolescents running around and we've all got this prince energy instead of this king energy. That what and you just basically said that. You you said, you know, I, I the, you used to do things for basically the prince energy and now mm. you feel like doing them for the for the good of the collective. Yeah, and gosh, that is so interesting. Yes, it's exactly that. And of course, it's the one of the most pleasing paradoxes of life is that the minute you give up that quest for having people tell you you're brilliant, having people give you a prize or a cup or a rosette or a gold star or whatever it is, um, of course, you have a much deeper sense of satisfaction and sense of validation because of course, being connected to the collective is what makes us humans happy. Because as you say, only about five minutes ago in evolutionary terms, that was how we lived. And the the collective was everything. I mean, to the degree of life and death, because if you were cast out of the tribe, the woolly mammoth would get you. And I think that's why rejection feels so terrifying to modern humans. It's that thing of the more you give, the more you get. You know, if you if you put something out into the world which you think will help other people, you get your own satisfaction, your own sense of of belonging, of meaning. You know, we all want to feel our lives have a little bit of meaning. And it's I find it exactly the same with horses, is one of the big turnarounds in thinking. A huge breakthrough was I used to go down thinking you know, what can my horse do for me today? Now I think, and I know this does, uh, this does sound terribly po-faced, but I do think it, I think, what can I give my horse today? And then because I'm thinking that she then gives me everything I need and want. But that's it, right? That That's the whole horse thing, right? Isn't there. it? If isn't you, it? First, you need to give them what they need in order for them to give you what you want. And they will give it quite willingly. They will give it willingly. And exactly, then it's a beautiful free exchange. You're not having to force anything. You're not having to wrangle. And I think it's exactly the same with humans. So uh, I never heard of the thing of the king energy and the prince energy. I think that's fascinating. But it, of course, it makes perfect sense. And it's the, the, the less you're looking for that external validation, the more you actually get a profound sense of true validation which sort of and it comes from outside and inside because it's an exchange isn't it you're you're offering something and then people without being asked without expectation will give back to you and then it then you're in a beautiful virtuous circle and the collective is working in its full glorious capacity and we feel whole we humans feel whole yeah, I love that. And I also, it's so interesting you should talk about the rites of passage. I was talking to a friend about this only this morning. In, um, As I understand it, in Native American tribes, there's a very important rite of passage which young boys go on, and I think it's called a vision quest. Do you know about that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's and it's a really big thing. I don't know if they still do it or if it's part of an ancient tradition but I always, when I read about that years ago, I remember being really struck and thinking how clever it is to give it a ritual, you know, that they go on a physical journey and they go off on their own. And it's that 
time when they move from being a boy to being a man. And I think the same happens actually with the Aboriginal peoples in Australia as well, I think. Isn't there a ritual about that age, sort of end of Adam? Oh, all of the... All of the First Nations people of the world, uh, yes, all you know, before in the, yeah, it it's what's really interesting is you know this is pre internet, isn't it? Like they didn't have contact with each other, yeah, but everybody had the same, yes, you know, or whether it's yeah, they all had the same, you know, there were different, uh, you know, different applications of it, but around the same age, there was a. There was yeah. a, basically a, a break where you you leave that juvenile energy and you have yeah. that man energy and and yeah they they all did it at that um, that retreat they told us a story about one of the um, Native American tribes would have a ceremony not a ceremony but a, a thing where they take the boy at a certain age out into the you know into the woods or out into you know if they're in the plains or whatever but they'd put him in a cave. And they'd say, you have to stay in this cave alone all night. Ooh. And so the boy is in the cave, you know, and the wolves outside are howling. You can hear the mountain lions or whatever. And and the boy spends the, the night alone in this cave, scared to death. And he gets through the night. And in the morning, he walks out of the cave, thinking he spent the night alone in the cave. Mm-hmm. And as he walks out of the cave, he turns and looks up the hill and all the warriors are sitting up there. Oh, I love that. And that's, that's so symbolic, isn't it? Um, I mean, and if you, if you were instantly, I think if you were in a situation where you were in your own internal dark cave of fear, you could imagine your warriors, bring your warriors with you. And then you're not alone anymore. You know, everybody must have their, their inner warrior that can get them through those dark nights. It's just a question of accessing that and believing in that. But I love that. And I also love, I love anything which has to do with people watching over people. It's one of the things I really love about my red mare is she is the lead mare. So she watches over the herd and I see her do it with such subtlety and such devotion. We've just had storms and she'll take them to the bit of the field. She'll almost calculate exactly the precise spot away from all the dangerous tall trees. And then she'll stand between them and the weather. So the weather's got to get through her first if it's going to get to her herd. And that's the same sort of idea, isn't it? The warriors are watching. You feel like you're in the dark cave, but actually the warriors are watching over you. Yeah. Yeah, that was was a pretty amazing story. This is kind of related to that sort of stuff. But speaking of warriors, tell me about your work with the uh, veterans. That sounds pretty amazing. Gosh, and that's been completely life-changing. And I wouldn't have had any of that if it wasn't for your horsemanship. um, In Britain, very few people do this kind of horsemanship. You know, we're still pretty old school. And there's a lot of what I was brought up in, which is the sort of kick-on school of horsemanship. Rather bizarrely, uh, three miles up the road, there is an outfit which was working with all the same on all the same principles that you work on, which we learned from Robert Gonzalez, who you've worked with, the incredible Robert Gonzalez. And I happened to meet this crew at a 
clinic. So I was right in the early days. I didn't really know what was going on. I just knew that I loved the idea of this way of connecting with a horse. And suddenly there were these people who had this whole incredible herd of quarter horses and they were doing this horsemanship, but they were doing it for a real purpose, which was to take wounded veterans and see if they could help them on the road to recovery. At the beginning, it was pretty much basically just, can I get someone with one leg into the saddle? The idea was they couldn't walk so well anymore, but we can put them on a horse and send them up a hill. It really was as simple as that. And then we started discovering that I came in sort of after the initial, the early days. We still had a lot of people with prosthetic limbs, but we were very much moving into the mental injury side of things. Because um, what what we started to realize was for all the physical wounds, there were 10 times more mental wounds and these went back all the all the way so you'd get people coming in who'd been in northern ireland or the falklands or bosnia and they'd held on and held on and held on for all these years with undiagnosed everything um you know mostly ptsd and then suddenly they couldn't hold on anymore and they'd explode and find themselves in a very dark place i mean a real cave And then they'd come to us and we discovered that if you put people with really broken minds and broken bodies with these horses and did this kind of connection work, um, real miracles would happen. I mean, people who had, people would look at me perfectly seriously and these are hard guys, you know, um, and they'd say if it what they pointed a horse and they'd say if it wasn't for that horse I wouldn't be here. And what they meant was they would have killed themselves. That's how powerful it was. When I first went there, I was very British. I was very embarrassed by any physical or mental wound. Um, and I remember one of the guys who works there full time. He's a, a sort of team leader. He has a um, an eye missing. His whole face was, as he puts it, degloved and had to be reconstructed. Um, he's got a leg missing. He's got quite a lot of fingers missing. And when I first met him, I didn't know where to look because you don't. Oh my God, there's the eye. Okay, so don't look at the eye. And oh my God, he was wearing shorts. It was in the summer. There's the leg. Don't look at the leg. And it was like that um, John Cleese thing of you know, for God's sake, don't mention the wall. Mm-hmm. And I was also pretty afraid of mental illness and because you, you know, you're always afraid of saying the wrong thing and you're always so conscious of your own luck and, you know, how is it that this person um, went through this and I didn't. So everything about me would tighten up and I I wouldn't know what to say. And now (laughs) this guy I work with, I couldn't tell you whether it's his left eye or his right eye that's missing. I've worked with him for six years. I couldn't tell you whether it's the left leg or the right leg that he's got a prosthetic on because I just see him. And that was a huge, huge change. Um, I am not in any way afraid of... um, people who are really struggling because I'm so used to working with people with wounds in in the brain in the mind and in the body that for me is a new normal so they've given me an incredible gift 
these veterans. They've allowed me to step into a world which previously was really, really frightening to me. Um, and, you know, I work with them a bit. I do, basically, I take photographs and do write-ups for the Facebook page. But um, I work a little bit on the courses. I'll lend a hand, you know. And it's just incredible because you see what horses can do for people who are, you know, really at the extreme end of struggle. Um, people who couldn't go out of the house for months at a time, people who were completely self-isolating. They were all doing lockdown before lockdown was even a word. Um, people who drove away their family and their loved ones, you know, but because they were so deep in shame. There's, it's interesting you mentioned the warrior. There's a lot of pride in the warrior. So the idea of asking for help is seen as an admission of weakness and therefore shame. Um, of course, the irony is, is that asking for help is pretty much the most courageous thing you can ever do, I think. But it's not in, the, in those cultures, those very masculine cultures. And for all that there are men and women in our armed forces, it's still it's a very masculine environment. Um, and you sort of you, they just wanted to be able to fix themselves, and then eventually they couldn't, so they'd come to us. And you'd see these incredible transformations, and and some of it is, be you know, it is more more in heaven and earth than I can explain in my philosophy. I can see how some of it works, but there's a little alchemy. There's a little magic. There's a little bit of the inexplicable. And um, I just feel incredibly lucky to be, to be privileged enough to see it and to hear it. They trust me with their stories. That's a big privilege. Um, and, again, to feel that, you know, you're, do, you're just doing a little something to help people along the way, especially when they've done so much for us. You know, the thing I got out of the – that um, the retreat I went to, one of them, well, I got so much out of it, it wasn't funny, but one of the things I got out of it was, you know, we all have this shame about whatever. Yeah. <laughs> especially men, you know, not, not, I'll say especially men, but not especially men. Everybody has it, but men have their own shame about certain things and I imagine women have shame about, you know, other things. And what was fascinating was there was, we were, quite a diverse group like one guy was a um a filmmaker and he's very artistic i wouldn't say effeminate mm. but you know heading that way he had a lot of feminine qualities about him and so you know and then there's the bloody you know un hostage negotiator guy and then there's the fireman and then there's this other beast of a guy and when it comes down to spilling your guts everybody had the same fears no matter where they were on the spec on the on that spectrum, and the thing was, every single one of us was ashamed about it, or have carried shame mm. about those fears. And what what were the fears? Uh, mostly, well, I'll tell you what. There was a lot of of I'm not enough. Wow. Yes, I I've been hearing that a lot lately. There was a lot of that, but the a lot of the fears came from fear itself basically and 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 you know the fear itself manifests in different ways whether it's fight flight or freeze you know so you know, basically bullies are scared mm -hmm. 
and cowards are scared, mm. but they're all the same. You know, it's all it's all the same. It was it was a it was fascinating, and you know, I've you know, I've seen therapists and stuff like that. And when you're seeing a therapist, you're spilling your guts to them, but there's no, mm. there's no, they're not spilling their guts to you. But when you're in a room full of men mm. and they all start spilling their guts and then like the first night we got there, so we got there Thursday night, so it was a three and a bit day thing, but we had dinner. And then after dinner, we go in the living room, sit down and the guy that's leading the whole thing says, okay, what we're going to do right now is we're going to go around the room, introduce yourself, tell us why you're here and tell us something shameful you've never told a single person in your life. <gasps> Oh my God, that's, that's talk about hitting the ground running. And then he said, I'll go first. Oh, good leader. And what he, and what he let out was like, holy cow. <laughs> like, okay, I could probably let a bit of myself out because that's a whole lot of stuff this guy just let out, you know. So he started out, it's very much like I'm really into Brene Brown these days, but yeah. she doesn't preach to people. Yeah. She shares her story and her struggles and, and she shares her research too, but she backs it up with, with personal anecdotes yeah. and stuff. And I think that's, I think that is a great way to break the ice is to, you know, to get someone to be vulnerable is to be vulnerable to them. And, and that's, and like Brene Brown talks about it all the time, you know, we all have this shame about stuff we don't want to share because we feel if we do, we'll be judged. Mm-mm. And usually when, when you finally get brave enough to spit it out, you're not judged. You get, yeah, me too. I feel the same way. And you get that validation instead of the judgment. I can completely agree I sometimes think me too are the two most powerful words in the English language and that I often think of it it's like a giving of permission you know because the person who's told the first story has gone first they are giving you permission to be your most messy muddly vulnerable undefended human self rather than the public self which is uh, you know, I've got all this together. I'm doing fine. Um, I have no weaknesses. It, you know, it depends from day to day, but, and particularly in this modern culture, there's a huge premium on masculinity being seen as strong. But the way that we think of strong is, is and not to me being strong is admitting that you're weak, but the strength is, it's like a impermeability. It's like nothing can touch me. It's, and then what, what I see is that because there's no bend in that, there's rigid, 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 rigid. And then it breaks. The whole thing breaks. I, I mean, I don't know. It's very difficult to generalize because, well, it just is. And one shouldn't really, but the, the, if there's a difference I observe between men and women, it's that, the women I know, we, we do bend. I and mean, we get really bent out of shape. But we do bend because I think the culture says that we, we are not so invested in that rigid presentation of strength. Uh, we have other shames and other, other cultural demands made on us. But we're pretty good at doing the bendy thing. Whereas you guys are supposed to be these great sort of upright uh, immovable objects and so when you finally hit your vulnerability there can be quite a big cracking <laughs> I'm mixing all my metaphors here but 
Uh, I see that as a slight difference. And then, of course, I think what, you know, what, and I've seen this a lot, when that break comes, it can be the most incredible new beginning. You know, it, that can be suddenly where growth comes. And there's a line in Leonard Cohen I really love where he says there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. So I think, you know, some, maybe we need to break a bit so that the light can get in. All of us humans, men and women. Yeah, I think so. You know, that, um, that whole book archetype thing that they talked about at that, at that retreat, it was saying what it explained was all that stuff that we think of as masculine yeah. is actually all prince energy. Right. That in true masculine, there's a lot of femininity. There's a lot of vulnerability and all that stuff in the true masculine. And, and all this like toxic masculinity stuff that goes on about these days, that's all prince energy. Yeah. That's the, that's the non, that's the non fully formed masculine. And it gets, so the masculine get judged, gets judged poorly because, because that's not good, but it's not, that's not the true masculine. That's not, that's not king energy. That's, that's prince energy. But what you were talking about a minute ago, when you're talking about, um, you know, having that, that shield and that, you know, we're talking about vulnerability, but before that you're talking about the horses and the, and the veterans and stuff like that. And there's a, uh, a horse trainer in Australia. He's a, he trains cutting horses, but this guy in his earlier years spent a lot of time in the Orient with some of the, I don't know what martial arts discipline it was, but this guy spent time with the old masters. Mm. He got to a very high level. But he trains horses now. And someone I know went to one of his clinics and he starts out the clinic and he says, okay, we need to talk about the three U's. Hmm. Not female sheep U's, but the three U's. He goes, he said, there's the U that you show to the general public. Mm -hmm. Then there's the U that you share with close family and friends. Mm -hmm. And then there's the U that your horse sees. Wow. And he said, that's, that's the you we've got, to, we've got to work on because if you want to get along with your horse, that's the you, that's the, that's, that's the real you. The you that your horse sees is the real you. They, they see through all that BS. And so, you know, he started out the clinic basically talking about the fact that if you want to get along with horses, you've got to sort you out. You can't put on that facade. You can't, you can't fool them. Well, the minute you said that, the you your horse sees, I thought two things. I thought you can't hide anything from your horse. And I also thought, and they can see it across the pasture. You know, they can see it from 100 feet away. So it's, it's yeah, I mean, this is why I always come back to the word authenticity. And you know what's so interesting about my mare is, I always like to tell the story of the rearing and the hurling of the head and the going backwards downhill and the spooking at teacups. That was a particularly shaming moment. But she was one of the quietest horses in her previous yard. So the guy who sold her to me couldn't understand what was going on. You know, she was a sweetheart in her polo yard. It's nothing to do with her or being an ex-racehorse or being a thoroughbred or being a red mare. It was me. You know, with him, she got all her needs met. When she gets her needs met, she is the most blissed out horse you can ever meet. She she suddenly, she got all the way to Scotland. You know what it's like when they come to a new place. So they're very much in their prey animal energy. She took one look at me and she said, no, 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 no. You're, you know, you're just not going to protect me from the mountain lions. 
And I didn't even know that was a thing because I didn't even know my evolutionary biology in those days. I thought you've got a temperamental horse, you sit deep, you kick on, and you ride through it. But uh, she wasn't a temperamental horse. She could just see the you that your horse sees. And she said, no, you you got to do some work, please. And so luckily I did. Uh, and now, you know, there are still days when the you, your horse sees, isn't quite up to scratch. And she will let me know pretty fast. So that's why, you know, this is another thing I love. And you were talking about martial arts. This is probably my biggest revelation is that this is a practice. It's not, you don't just tick a box. You don't say, oh, I've done that bit of work and now I can go on to the next level. I have to work on the you your horse sees every damn day of my life. And luckily I've got such an expressive horse because she tells me if I'm not doing that practice, if I'm not putting in the hours, if I get... You know, it was interesting what you said about the you, the you, the world sees. My feeling is that you want to make the gap between that, the external self that you present to the world. And everyone does that a little bit. And that's because there's a social contract. And, you know, we don't want to scare the metaphorical horses, but you want the gap between that and what's really going on inside to be as narrow as possible so that you're offering your horse congruence. Um, That's the word I was looking for right there is being congruent. I got, I mean, that was a Jane Pike revelation for me because I used to think you put your emotions down at the gate. So I, you know, I pretty quickly understood, I think from watching you work that, that I had to be a good, steady, reliable partner for my horse. And so I thought it was just that I would dump all my crap, like a big old overstuffed suitcase at the gate and then I wouldn't bother her with it and so I remember writing about this quite a lot and somebody said to me on my Facebook page they said you do know that you don't have to pick up the suitcase again when you leave the fields but I mean of course I did but also I hadn't really put it down I just pretend I was pretending I put it down that was me going through the motions but what, what that ended up being was completely incongruent because I was essentially going down to the field and saying, don't worry, I'm fine. Left the emotions at the gate and we can now have a nice ride or whatever it was. Now I go down. If the processing has not happened that day, if there's a bit of a jangle going on, if I suddenly find myself, you know, my, little, my startle reflex is suddenly off the scale or I find myself getting obscurely irritated because, I don't know, the Connemara's broken the field railing, which she does the whole time. I'll just, I'll literally say out loud, look, I'm really sorry, haven't done the work, emotions not processed, you're not getting my best self today, and I apologise for that. And, of course, then I'm in congruence because... Right. And then she, you know, she gives me a bit of a look, but she's fine with that because that a horse can deal with that. I think what a horse can't deal with is, I'm fine. They hate that, don't they? It's the lioness at the waterhole pretending that she's had her lunch when she hasn't. Yeah, I talk about this quite a bit as far as, I, you know, like Jane Pike says the whole fake it till you make it thing is BS. BS. And I tell people, you are better off telling the horse how scared you are. Yeah. 
Let him know how scared yeah. you are, not pretending you're not scared, because that's just that gives them the heebie-jeebies. That's that that, that incongruency. It, it doesn't work. And the, and the thing about if you actually if you're actually congruent, like so, let's say you're scared, mm-hmm. then and you allow your actions to show you're scared. Mm-hmm. That means you won't put your helmet on and your air blow up vest and take your horse for a ride down the road, and then blame the guy driving the car for scaring your horse. Yeah. You know, because a lot of times, and that's just one example, but a lot of times people, when they have an accident or whatever, they weren't congruent leading up to it. You yeah. know, they, 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 they were scared, but they said, I've got to push through or my friends want to go for a trial ride and, and I don't want to upset them or whatever, but I'm not ready, but I'm going to do it anyway. And, you know, I, I think if you, you're actually scared and you admit you're scared, yeah. you'll, you will do things to keep you safe. You know, like listen to your gut. All my uh, crashes and we luckily haven't had that many. Um, but the few that have happened, a couple of fallings off, one moment where I really did think I was in danger of damaging my horse because we got stuck in a Scottish bog. And I honestly, I thought she was going to do her tendons and that would be it. She'd never be able to walk again. Well, either because exactly like you said, I was pushing through because I think I'd have, I had a bit of, I would, I must in those times have had a bit of shame about feeling fearful so I reverted to the kick on of my childhood or because I didn't want to disappoint someone else so someone said you know let's go the four miles over the hills from my house from my house to their house and she's the kind of person she loves big adventures I'm not that adventurous I felt very doubtful for both my horses um, and we did end up in this really terrifying bog and they were on the verge of panic because they couldn't find their footing and and um, I was on the verge of panic and it could have ended really badly. Luckily, because we'd done so much work by that stage, um, we all stayed together. I was riding one and ponying the other. So you can imagine and then suddenly you're in a bog and it was from one step to, to the next. It feels so symbolic looking back now. And, you know, we managed to, keep it together but afterwards I looked back and I said you know how we we got that close to disaster because I couldn't say no I couldn't say I don't feel comfortable with this plan I wanted that friend to think I was fearless like her you know and I'm not and I should have this is where you get good fear and bad fear don't you You get brilliant helpful keep you safe don't be an idiot fear and you need to listen to that voice, damn it. And because otherwise you do end up getting stuck in that bog. And then you get the uh, amygdala on steroids where it just thinks everything's a mountain lion. And you're inventing stories in your head of things which are never going to happen, but feel as real to your psyche as if you are in that bog. And it's learning to, to, to differentiate the two, you know, to listen to the good one to be brave enough, just like you say, listen to that fear, don't get on and then blame. I was so tempted to blame my friend. I wanted to say she made me do this stupid walk. and uh, But no, it was my fault because I just said, we're not up to this. This is too big. A, it's too big a thing for us. But I was too ashamed to say it. But God, I wanted to blame everyone but myself. You know, that and that, that whole fear part you just talked about, like, 
there's the fear you should listen to, but there's the fear you shouldn't listen to. That comes back to balance. But so you guys listening to this, you if you haven't listened to one before, I have a, a list of 20-something questions I send out to my guests and they get to choose which ones they would feel comfortable answering on air. And one of those ones that Tanya didn't pick <laughs> was what have you become better at saying no to? And right then you just told us what you have become better at saying no to. You've become better at saying no to being worried about that external validation or, or what other people may think of you. And that's that's growth right there because that one, you know, that um, being better at saying no to that I think is is a good one. But So that's the question you one of the questions you didn't pick, but one of the questions you did pick, which relates to this whole thing, is what is your relationship with fear? And I think we've kind of covered this, but yeah, what's your relationship with fear? Well, I, I, it's so interesting to me. I think that was the first question I picked, and, and it's quite it a list that you sent, and I just went, yes, that's my question. And I love that we've naturally started talking about fear anyway, and and I think we've covered it really well, but the only thing I would add, and this is a big change, huge, 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 and quite recent, is I used to see fear as something that you had to conquer, that you had to fight. So, you know, talk about warrior energy. I was all like, fear isn't going to get me. It isn't going to stop me. It isn't going to uh, overwhelm me. I was also, I was very conscious. I had a very brave dad, physically brave. You know, he rode huge great big steeplechases over enormous great steeplechase fences at 35 miles an hour. He broke his back and his neck twice. And the doctor said, you must never sit on a horse again. And a year later, he was riding in the Grand National. You know, he was that fella. He was just wild. And so I always felt in a way I had to live up to that. And, and I, but I'm also quite invested in moral courage I think that's really important the people I admire have moral courage they're the people who speak up when other people stay silent and I've had quite a lot of trouble with that in my life because it's a hard thing to do so I always thought I had to have this battle with fear because then I could be brave like my dad and I could be brave like my heroes and heroines and (laughs) you'll be very surprised to hear that didn't work very well. The change, and I love the way you asked the question, what's the difference in your relationship with fear? I now understand that I need to understand my fear, make friends with my fear. She is a woman. Um, I gave her a name years ago. She was called Gloria. And for a long time, I thought she was a kind of swishy, Cruella de Vil, you know, cigarette holder, long red dress. And she was the one who just came along and said, no, you can't do this. You can't. You're not good enough. You're never going to be good enough. She was the voice of terror in my head. And of course, the biggest terror is always that we won't be good enough. So there was Gloria swishing around. And I thought I'd got this rather good technique because I'd just go, oh, we like to swear on the podcast. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I'm trying to. So. <laughs> I just go, bugger off, Gloria. And I thought that was fantastic. Or, you know, because she was a terrible old lush. So I'd tell her that there was gin in the next room. And, and again, these are, they're not bad techniques, but 
they didn't really work. You know, the, the deep terror of just not being the person I wanted to be and particularly of not being the person I wanted to be for this incredible horse persisted. And then I suddenly started thinking about her in a completely different way. And this is what I mean by making friends with her. I suddenly understood that she was doing what you talked about years ago. I mean, early on in this journey, you talked about people doing the best they can with the information they've got. And so you try not to judge those people because they really are doing their best. I suddenly realized that because Gloria is coming straight out of the amygdala, which is the most ancient part of the brain, which is the part of our brain, the brain that really did keep our human ancestors alive, that propagated the species that stopped them being eaten by the woolly mammoths. Um, because that's where she lives, she doesn't really understand the modern world. She doesn't understand that there aren't woolly mammoths anymore. So instead of thinking of her as this witchy, bitchy, fagash, lil, gin-soaked demon, I think, oh, my God, she's just woolly mammoth girl. You know, she's just in the wrong century. She doesn't. So she's she really actually, when she says, no, you can't start that book, because it won't be good enough and then everyone will laugh at you and, you know, the, the, the critics will sneer and you'll be humiliated. She's not trying to stop me being my best self. She's trying to protect me because for her, in Woolly Mammoth world, rejection means getting cast out of the tribe and being eaten for lunch. So essentially, she's trying to stop me dying and once I understood that, and I'm, this is a process, you know, damn, I'm just still, I'm still working all this out and I can't do it every time. Um, but when I get scared, instead of going bugger off, Gloria, I go, it's okay, Gloria. The, there aren't any woolly mammoths anymore. And then I can look at the fear and then I can differentiate because I'm not in a rage with Gloria. I'm not trying to, I'm not going into a battle. I'm going into a exploration. So in every uncomfortable emotion, there's a huge amount of valuable information. That's a switch. So I start thinking, where's the valuable information? What's, what's the good fear that should make me say no to the four-mile trek across the bog? But that's self-preservation. That's knowing your own limits. What's the completely made-up, amygdala fear that just thinks that everything you do is going to turn to ashes and let's differentiate between those and let's just send Gloria into a nice safe place doesn't necessarily have to have gin in it but you know with the comfy chair and some soup let me remember that I'm not about to be eaten by a saber-toothed tiger and then let's just see if we can take a breath and get some reality going um, that's a big change, big, big, big change. And actually one I'm really happy about because God feeling frightened all the time is tiring, isn't it? Well, uh, what's interesting about that was you, you did the whole Wayne Dyer thing. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change and you realize that your fear was there to help you. It's not the enemy. And yeah. I don't know if you listened to the podcast I did with Jane, but yeah, uh, yeah, so Jane flipped something like that. It wasn't about fear, but Jane flipped something on its head that I've always held a belief about 
the same way she said it's not your enemy it's your friend you got to look at it that's what it was it's there for a purpose it's there to help you it's not there to argue with and so yeah that's I think we both had the same um the same flipping of the switch right there I'm going to ask you another of your questions here um what accomplishment are you most proud of oh my horse oh my god my horse uh, uh, (laughs) it makes me a bit weepy um I didn't have a happy horse and I didn't give up. I didn't give up on her. And she is happy. She is a happy, she's a magnificent incarnation of her absolute truest self. Um, and that was a structure that I, I built. So I, and I'm careful with this word, but I did. I failed her at the beginning, and then uh, with a you know lot of gritted teeth and a lot of mistakes along the way, and a lot of one step forward and twenty steps backwards, and a lot of I'm never going to get there, and a lot of help. You know what I just said about fear? That's huge. That was all from the work I did with with Jane. Um, you know, I'd love to take credit for that, but that's all come out of, of Jane Pike. And, you know, this this horse is the creation of many, many human minds and hearts. I mean, everybody from the teachers like you to really good friends who I can ring up when it's all going wrong and I've lost my courage um, to the, the I have a wonderful posse of young girls who started coming quite by chance because they didn't have ponies. And I said, oh, well, you know, come and play with my horses. And I never thought that. And then they just kept coming. And, of course, you know, they always say the greatest way to learn is to teach. So I realized you can't have kids coming to your field and playing with great big half-ton thoroughbreds if you don't teach them, especially this, this horsemanship, which is it's very much about... Um, making the environment <clears throat> safe for the horses and the humans. You know, by by teaching them, I had to learn more and I had to really distill what I had learned so far. So so it's been this sort of wonderful community effort. And, and because she had a Facebook page, it's all the people who had come to the page. And there are thousands of them. And they come and they say, you know, we thank you for the place of peace and the red mare is incredible and, they don't laugh at my nonsense and they completely go with the fact that I think this horse is the queen of the world and they've just love my every absurdity and whim. It's two achievements actually, isn't it? It's that it's that I took a very unhappy horse and I didn't give up. And she now is an extraordinary soul. And that she connects me to so many incredible people some who I'll never meet in real life you know some who are across oceans and out in the far shores of the internet and some of whom are people who are you know part of my daily lived reality and that's a sort of miracle also you know what's so funny is I should say a book shouldn't I (laughs) I should say um I'm most proud of a of something I've written, but I'm not. I'm 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 proudest of that horse. 
there's no three ways about it because it's a soul thing and and that's what matters you know i think there's a lot more to that horse than just that horse like you said you know she wasn't happy and now she's happy and I'm guessing you are quite possibly happier than you were before that journey. But the, the thing that kind of jumps out at me, mm. not, not necessarily accomplishment you are most proud of, but the, the impact you're making is think about those, your posse. Yeah. How old are those girls? Um, they are now um, uh, 11 and 12 and 15. They started coming when they were about eight and nine. Okay, think about, so it's been about two or three years. Yeah. Think about the life lessons they've learned, the, the, the things that you're teaching them with the red mare that I think we're both the same age. You're the same age as me, I'm pretty sure. So I'm 53. We won't yeah. say how old you are, but you're the same age as me. Um, you think about, you know, it's in the last three years I've started to wrap my head around this stuff and how much that has changed my life. Think about if you had what what path what what different direction could we have gone off in? Mm. What difference could what more of a difference could we have made if we'd have had the access to this way of looking at things at the age of ten? I, and I think it's I think that's just amazing. Your hands on work with those girls in the Red Mare, I think that's that's something I wouldn't I definitely wouldn't discount that as life changing for them. I love it that you said that. Thank you for saying that, because it, it's very, very close to my heart. The thing that makes me happiest and proudest about those girls is not so much all the incredible horsemanship they've learned, which is extraordinary. I mean, they can really do stuff. But it's that because of the way that we approach horses and we approach ourselves when we're with our horses is They've learned to trust their instincts. So they've learned to be incredibly imaginative when they're with the horses. They've got all the principles. But one of the things we often say is we know where we want to get. So say we've got, we come down one of the horses is a little bit unsettled. So we want to get her from a place of being reactive or tense to a place of being calm and happy in herself. Um, and I'll often say to the girls, we know where we want to get. But I, I said, I don't care how you get there. Because I trust them now, they and, and they then trust themselves. And so then what happens, and this this ties in with my writing, and is they get creative. They let their imaginations off the, the hook. There's no, oh my God, there are rules that we have to do it this way, otherwise, you know, the BHS will be crossed with us. They can get there any way they want. And often they will get there better and quicker than I will because they've got that wonderful lightness of childhood as grown-ups we're both 53 we do accumulate a little bit of stuff along the way you know much as we try not to there is that beautiful lightness of childhood because they just haven't got the press of responsibility and I don't know all the things that press on on adults and they would say culture cultural conditioning is probably one of those yes yes yeah <clears throat> that hasn't silted up um yet and so I watch them doing things absolutely instinctively which I would really have to think about um but at the beginning they didn't know to trust those instincts so that's the difference with them and man when they get creative I mean talk about the power of stories 
It's like they invite the horses into a story. And uh, my favorite one of these is we had a little Connie mare, have a little, and she belongs to my great niece, but I said I do the initial training and work and just getting her settled and everything. She was very anxious and she didn't like having her bridle put on. So we did all the work and the connection and everything, and she got a lot better. But there would still be days when the bridle wouldn't go on. And I had two of my posse down there, and I said, look, I'm just you just get on with it and do it any way you want. And I, I genuinely thought, I'll go away, I'll leave them for 10 minutes, you know, let them do it. You don't have to step in and do it for them. I knew I could get that bridle on in a second, but I thought, no, no, let them do it. And I thought it'll be 10 minutes and there'll be a lot of giggling and the bridle will not be on. I should have had more faith. There was a lot of giggling. The bridle was on in about four minutes. The giggling was, I said, how do you do that? And the giggling was because they'd done it by pretending to be mermaids. And they invited Clover to come with them into the ocean. And then the mermaid thing apparently wasn't working (laughs) quite so well. So being very lovely, flexible thinkers, they changed and they just became fishes. And they invited Clover to use the bridle to fish them out of the sea. And they said, we think that she got so fed up with us being idiots that she just put the bridle on herself. And she did. She just picked up the bit with her mouth. (laughs) It's just anything to make these kids stop. (laughs) But, you know, no adult I know would get anywhere close to telling their horse a story like that, to inviting their horse into that story with them. And we still talk about the day they got the bridle on by being mermaids and fishes. And for me, that's a parable of um, of how I can, you know, I learn from them. And sometimes I have to remind myself to let, you know, to trust my own instincts, to let my own creativity off the, off the leash uh, and not to think we have to do everything by by the rules. So that's another really beautiful part of the posse. Wow. that uh, Yeah, I, I didn't expect that. Yeah, I mean, um, you, you wouldn't do that in a clinic, would you? You wouldn't say, I know. No. Bridling issues? Well, you know what? <laughs> a couple of years ago when I was trying to figure out a lot of this stuff that um, I've got my head wrapped around a little bit now, I was you know, it was, I think it was 2017 when I spent the whole year just experimenting in front of people. Yeah. You know, trying stuff at clinics. I, I said, I have no idea what's, what I'm doing here, but I've got an idea. And I said, you know what? I'm not going to, I'm not going to dress up in a saffron colored robe and chant Hare Krishna out here in front of you, but I will if I have to. <laughs> it's like, if that's what it takes, but yeah. yeah. So yeah, I'd kind of, I'd kind of given up. I'd kind of given up being inside the box. What other questions did you, or this will be a good one, a bit lighthearted. One of the questions you chose is, what's an unusual habit you have? Oh, <laughs> well, actually, I've slightly answered that one because I think, I think my most unusual habit is doing the place of peace with my horse. I mean, it's funny, actually, because to anyone who works with you or who follows your horsemanship, they wouldn't find it that odd because there's a lot of standing and breathing. And um, the reason I think of it at the moment as an unusual habit (laughs) is because um, my landlord's got the builders in 
And the builders are very kindly building us, and this is very exciting, a new tap room and a feed store. And so normally I go down to my field and it's hidden away. It's miles off the private road, a public road, and nobody can really see me. It's not overlooked by anything. And so when I go in and I stand with my horse and I do the breathing and, uh, you know, I tell her about all my emotions, especially if, if they're a bit jangled up and, that feels to me very, very normal. It's not an unusual habit because it's something I do every day and obviously it's incredibly meaningful and it's changed my life. Um, but I have lately <laughs> become slightly conscious that the builders think it's a bit weird because I, I, think, um, I think they think I'm supposed to come down to my horses and kind of tack them up and ride them or at least lunge them. Um, but I go and I do this sort of breathing. And then I've the place of peace has evolved over the years. So quite often there will be a forehead on forehead. So I'll lay my forehead against theirs and see if I can let my thoughts flow into them and vice versa. And there also is singing. I, I do sing them songs. And, yeah, I, I mean, I'm a little bit conflicted about this because it does feel very normal to me, but I think it's a fairly unusual habit. I mean, maybe I may have this wrong. The builders may think that's what everyone does with their horses. Um, but... Uh, it, anyway, it's making me laugh. It's just making me laugh that there's this funny middle-aged woman. And I'm also, I'm pretty scruffy, so I'm always covered in mud. My hat looks like a cat sat on it. And I stomp down to the field and I do breathing and singing and chatting with my my thoroughbreds. And that's how we roll in our field. Oh, that's a great story. I can, I, I you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to go with, I think the builders think that's perfectly normal. They are very nice builders. And I, and I, I have explained to some of them about, you know, a bit of the evolutionary biology, which I'm not sure they entirely needed to know. Um, but, you know, we've had the prey animal discussion. They're very good about that. Problem is, you know, with me, if you ask me a question, I will answer it. <laughs> and one of them made the mistake of asking me a question. <laughs> So um, that was his work morning, slightly ruined. <laughs> I was going to say he didn't get much building done that day. No, he didn't. really didn't. He, there was a point where he started to look slightly frightened and there was a little bit of kind of backing away. Um, but by that stage, I was on to the, you know, the lioness at the waterhole, so I couldn't stop, obviously. Right. No, you can't stop halfway through that story. Okay, I have another question for you. Um, what has been your biggest failure and how has it helped you? Uh, I love the framing of that question. That's probably why I chose it because one of the, another of my changes is to not think of failure as failure um, in that all our failures help us, I think, hugely. I think... Well, my biggest life failure was when I got sacked by my publisher and my agent for the second time. And that was after the Sunday Times bestseller list. And, and I, I remember at the time thinking I was worried about how my career was going to go. 
and I have a very good friend and we were actually riding at the time and she said well let's think of the worst that can happen that's her thing she thinks what's the worst then she she looks at all the things that she can do in that situation and then she finds that the worst thing that can happen isn't so scary so we sketched out the worst thing that could happen and it did it absolutely did you know my my career which I thought was taking off was completely in the wilderness and it was very humiliating and just horrible and difficult and and still can be actually a little bit because I do have to be brave enough to go out on my own it's helped me because it made me be imaginative it made me go out on my own it made me understand what's really important to me and you know when you can't do something i.e publish a book you have to think of what do you miss about it and I realized I didn't miss the publication I hated all that I hated the publicity I hated the hoopla I hated going into local radio stations and they had absolutely no idea who you are because I wasn't a famous writer so there were lots of little humiliating pinpricks and also I'm an introvert so I hated having to go and sell myself that that was a really horrible part of it so I said to myself okay you failed in your publishing career in that and and I had written a whole book which then was rejected but that doesn't mean that you failed as a writer and what do you love about the writing you love touching people I love that one person who sends me the message saying I read something you wrote today and it made a difference to me and my mare I love the English language I love playing with words Um, I love the tap 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 of my fingers on the keyboard None of that required me to be employed. None of that required a publisher to say, we're going to give you an advance. So then I had to work out, well, how can I get all the things I love uh, when I've been essentially, well, cast out sounds a bit dramatic, but that was the effect of it. So I started publishing myself and that's so much more fun. I have complete control Sure, there's no marketing department. I reach a much smaller group of people and I have to do it all myself. But it means I can have a thought. I can make it into a book. I can press the button in my room in Scotland and out it goes. And um, it means I have to have eight different jobs because it doesn't bring in enough money. But then that's, that failure also helped me because it means I've now become a teacher, which I wouldn't have done before. So I tutor people, I teach writing and I teach English and I teach history and and that's a huge source of satisfaction. And I have the posse to thank because they taught me how to be a teacher. They gave me the confidence to think, well, if I can teach them all this crazy horse stuff, I can teach somebody Othello or Hamlet or how to write a novel. Um, that was my biggest life failure. And it was a, you know, it was a proper big in the world failure. It wasn't how I thought about it. It was a failure. And it was very public and it was very visible. And the amazing thing is I can talk to you about it now without a single squirm in my tummy. You know, there's none of that little twist of shame. It's not like I'm talking through the shame. Um, Because it's what happens to everybody. Everybody has a crash, don't they? Everybody has a thing where their dream suddenly just is in the dust and to me the success or failure is how do you pick yourself up from that 
what do you do with that? What do you, what valuable information do you find? You know, what hope do you find in that? Uh, that's, it's the man in the arena, isn't it? It's, are you going to accept that life means getting your hands dirty and my God, you're covered in dust and sweat, but you're in the arena. You're not going to hide away. You're not going to run away. You're not going to give up. You'll find a way through. And, you know, the funny thing is, I think if I'd gone on being a success, and I'm putting that almost consciously in inverted commas, I don't think this horse journey would have happened because I'd have been the writer. I'd have been in my head. And even if I'd got a horse, I think I'd have probably gone down the traditional route because I'd have been all my creativity would have been in my career. As it is, I had some creativity left over. So I could give that to the red mare. I turned her into the greatest story of my life. And I don't think that would have happened otherwise. So, yes, thank you for asking that question. That, that's a great, 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 great answer. That was amazing. Um, uh, oh, I got to I got to take all that in, but that was that was pretty cool. Hey, have you ever read um, Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert? No, that sounds great. I love the title. I'm going to write it. Down. Uh, so she's the lady that wrote. She's the lady that wrote Eat, Pray, Love. That's right. And her book, her book Big Magic, is about the the creative process mm. and how. And it's about, she actually tells a very interesting story in that book about how she had written some flops and then she wrote Eat, Pray, Love, Mm -hmm. which was almost autobiographical. So she'd written fiction and then she wrote that and that was almost autobiographical. And so then she becomes famous from that. And then she has this idea, she wants to write a book. She has this idea come to her about a... um, a man and his son that have an oil company in Canada hmm. and there's a lady that runs the office. She's their office manager or something or other. And the son decides he wants to go to South America to drill for oil. Goes in there, he disappears and the, the office manager gets sent by the father down there to try to find him and adventure ensues. That's the, that's the premise of the story. It comes to her. Anyway, she's going to write it, but she doesn't really write it. And, the next year she's going to write it but doesn't really write it. And mm-hmm. then she's at a, I don't know if it's a writer's conference or something, but she needs, meets another writer that she's a fan of who's a fan of her but they've never met. And they meet, hey, hey, gang, a big, huge fan, give each other a hug. And they stay in touch for the next couple of years, and, but they write. They don't email, they don't phone call, they write letters to each other. Oh, wow. And they stay, they stay in touch for the next couple of years. And, but sometime during that she sits down and tries to write this book and it just won't come to her, Mm. just won't come to her at all. And it's been two years since she met this other lady and they meet up again at another conference or whatever. And then she's like, so what have you been up to? And the other lady, so not the Eat, Pray, Love lady, the other lady says, well, I'm in the middle of a book. I've almost got it finished. And she says, Elizabeth Gilbert says, so what's the book about? She goes, well, it's about this father and son that have an oil company in Canada and there's a lady that works in the she's kind of their 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 manager anyway the son goes to South America anyway she basically tells the exact same story and Elizabeth Gilbert's kind of amazed and she goes 
how long have you been writing this book? And she says, oh, probably a couple of years now. And Elizabeth Gilbert says, so when did this idea first come to you? And she goes, you know, it was about the time we met. <gasps> and the whole premise of this book is the writing thing is, is this magic that the universe gives you these ideas. And if you do not use them, they will take them away and give them to somebody else. And she basically says when we hugged, Mm. the idea came out of her into this other lady because the universe said, you're not using it. I've given you this great idea. I've given you this story and you just keep putting it off. Wow. And so the whole book is about the, the magic in, in the creative thing. And you, and if you, if you get given this stuff, you don't use it, you lose it. The universe will take it away and give it to somebody else. And she talks to songwriters and yeah, it's, 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 um, yeah, it's, I didn't know if you'd read it, but it's a, fascinating book about it's woo woo book about writing i was gonna say that's some serious super woo i mean that's no shit super woo oh, yeah. <laughs> but but yeah, actually, that's... uh one of the things i do i do talk about with my students a lot is that there is a place where ideas live where writing live lives and i think and I've been thinking about this a lot, and it might be connected to this idea. I think it's just in the space just between the conscious and the subconscious. I think there's a liminal space there, and that's where the magic happens. And so one of the things I'm always trying to do for myself and for my students is to get them into that place. And it's a really fascinating combination of kind of letting go but you still have to have a certain direction and discipline. You know, you can't just let, let because you've got to access that place, but you've got to let go enough that you'll let yourself just slide below the conscious mind. Um, I never thought of but I, I never thought of the universe taking the ideas back, <laughs> but there's definitely a, a feeling. Sometimes if I write something really damn good, uh, I can say that even though I'm British and brought up not to pay myself compliments because it was nothing to do with me. It just some it comes that when when you write the really good stuff, it's like somebody's just giving you dictation. So so you say it's good, but you, you're not boasting because it wasn't really anything to do with you. You just did the typing. So there is definitely that aspect of it. And, and I think it's... Um, the reason that all of us writers go on, even though only about 10 writers in the world actually make a living from doing this, is because when you get there, and it's, you know, like when you're working with a horse and it's as if they're working off your thought. So your thought is their thought and their thought is your thought. And you just have that feeling of streaming connection. It's it's that feeling. Um, and because it that's the greatest feeling in the world that's you're always hunting for that um you know a lot of days you're writing and it's quite hard work you're you're pushing the rock up right. but sometimes you get that dear old the universe's thought is your thought and your thought is the universe's and there it comes and my god that's on the money and and it is oof, not like any other feeling in the world, really. That and the red map. Yeah, I think that, yeah, when I talked to uh, Joe Ellis, who wrote the Journey On song, 
and he was he's a musician from South Africa, and he was talking about the same thing when when stuff just playing the guitar and stuff just comes out of your fingers. That you, there's no thought you're not thinking about it; it yeah. just happens. He goes, "That's that's why you play a guitar to get that, yeah, to get that, to get that feeling there." Um, do I have any more questions for you here? Because we're kind of dragging on here a little bit. Um, we've covered a lot. Well, in, you know, it's a, we've probably covered this, and I think this is probably the red mare. The other question that you wanted asked was, "What has changed in the past five years that helped who you have become?" Oh yeah, so that is. Um, I mean, it's actually it's funny because. The one I haven't talked about is my little bay mare. She had to be put down in the summer and I was really um, still was heartbroken and heartbroken. She came five years ago and my mum died five years ago. My mum died two days after that mare arrived. And um, so if the red mare was eight years ago and she set me off on this incredible journey of exploration and discovery what the little bay mare did was she she was she's a completely different character she she has had a much more steely sense of self she was much more she didn't need me in the same way um so what the relationship that she and I had was completely different what she allowed me to do and so here's the change question was the thing that I can't do with the red mare so much. The red mare needs me to be reliable and trustworthy and confident and beam confidence into her. The little bay mare, and and it's funny that she arrived just after my mum died, uh, allowed me to strip myself bare. She allowed me to be completely vulnerable to the degree that this is a very personal story, but I'm going to tell it to you anyway because this has been such a lovely and honest conversation. Just before Christmas this year, a very dear friend of mine um, killed himself. And that's a big pain. You know, it's a, it's a really, it's like it's happening to your body. It's a big trauma. And uh, I knew a bit about grief, but that was a really big one. And the incredible Jane Pike said that she had once worked with a Buddhist nun and in Buddhism, they have this beautiful practice where for 42 days after someone, do you know this, after 42 days after someone dies, you do something for them every day to send them on their way. And because this was such a particularly, you know, it's a very sudden and violent death. He did not live out his natural span. The idea of being able to do something for my lovely lost friend who I'd known since I was 15 just spoke to me and so I rode for him and I couldn't have done that kind of riding on my red mare because I was riding and weeping and shouting at the sky and you know calling out to him saying go in peace I mean uh, talk about unusual habits (laughs) the builders would have been really surprised um and that little mare, and she was tiny, she was hardly a shade over 15 hands, and it was December, so she was all woolly and furry with her winter coat. She just took me up that hill whilst I said goodbye to my lost friend. 
And she could do that because she had so much sense of self that she didn't mind if I was just falling apart. You know, I did all the things you're not supposed to do with your horse. But she could take that. And then she'd bring me back down the hill again. Uh, We got through it. We got through that heartbreak together. And it was one of the best things I've ever done for somebody who's died. I rode for that lovely man. And she allowed me to be at my messiest and rawest and most cracked and the light came in that was a change wow (laughs) thanks for sharing that's a pretty amazing story well thank you for taking me there so it's not just about kicking on (laughs) you know i was doing a clinic in australia i can't remember it was early this year early last year but well, I had a bit of a break and these two ladies came up to me and they said, you know, you're, you're all on about, um, you know, um, being there and helping your horse and blah, blah, blah. They said, we're police officers and we come home from work and we've had a bad day. And she said, our horse, you know, is this wrong? But our horses, we get them out and just going for a ride on them gets rid of all that. And I said, well, the thing is, I think we're all here to help each other. And if you have a horse who is, excuse me, if you have a horse who is, you know, who is worried and all that sort of stuff, then you've got to be the supportive one. You've got to want to be the one to support them. But at some point in time, you get those horses to where they can support you. And instead of them coming to you and just letting it all out and having their freak out and you helping them through it, you can actually have the opposite thing happen to where you can come along and have a freak out and they can help you through that. And it sounds like that's what the the little bay mare did for you. Yeah, that's it. It's beautifully put. And and funny enough, as you were saying that, I suddenly thought the the red mare can do it. Uh, she doesn't need me always to be the strong one and the confident one. Um, there are days sometimes when I'm going out with my little girls and if one of the ponies has had a wobble, you know, I've really got to keep an eye on my young ones. So again, I'm not doing the thing we're supposed to do, which is absolutely focus on our horses and be there for them. I'm looking at, is Clover okay? Is my little, you know, my posse okay? Nobody falling off. And the red mare will just, she'll just ride herself. I don't even need a hand on the reins. It's, It's like she says, okay, you've got to be lead mare for your lot. So I'll just lead the way for the ponies and I'll just get on with it and I'll take the shift. The thing with her is she then needs me to step up, whereas the other one became almost a sort of force of nature on her own. All she needed was just a little bit of love. She loved physical affection. She's one of the very few horses I know who actually likes hugs. Um, But... Yes, that's, I mean, that's the relationship, isn't it? It's, it's, you invest and invest and invest. You give them as much of the best of yourself as you can find. You make that promise to them that you're going to offer rather than demand, you know, and that you're going to go on doing the work on yourself and that you're going to try and be congruent. And, and then, once you've done that for long enough, there is a tipping point, I think. And I think then there are days when they'll say, it's okay, I, I have got this shift. And then it's the most beautiful reciprocal. And um, 
anyway, yes, you're, I think you're right. Uh, I think when you've dug the foundations really deep, that's when the, the, that relationship becomes what you've just described. And that's, my God, that's when it's worth all the work, isn't it? It is. So you just, uh, you just had something pop up on your screen to say it's leaving in 56 seconds. Yeah. You're still there. And so I looked down, I just realized that so on the, so if you guys listening at home, I use a, a service that uh, records this in two channels. So we can uh, edit the sound later. We can raise and lower one's level if it's louder than the other. But we can also see each other while we're doing this. So we don't record the visual, we just record the audio. So at the bottom of my screen, it's got my email address, warwickwarwickchiller.com. At the bottom of Tanya's screen, it says impartial resonator. Is that you? <laughs> I did note. I've never heard that expression in my life. I was actually so astonished by it. I wrote it down in my notebook. Look, impartial resonator. Um, I don't know. I'm going to have to look up what an impartial resonator is, but it says it at the bottom of your screen. Well, I'm going to take it because I think it sounds quite exotic. Um, it I, does sound quite exotic. I think I'm going to be an impartial resonator from now on. No, I just thought it was something to do. I've never done a squad cast before. Um, Nothing. No, that that says who you are. So you're the impartial resonator. So it's coming up two hours. uh, And uh, didn't. I I think you've been impartially resonating with me and our listeners for uh, a couple of hours now. But, you know, I was so looking forward to this chat with you because like I said I just love the way you write and then you like I said when I read your writing I read it in your voice Mm. but and so you know I I don't know if you've ever seen the movie um excuse me um what was it called it was called Sling Blade with Billy Bob Thornton I'm not sure if you've ever seen Sling Blade but he's this um guy from the south and he's got this real distinct voice you know and this this uh he's got this real voice like this and in the movie the boy says to him i like the way you talk <laughs> well, I, I have to i have to tell you the same i like the way you talk well I, you know I, I love to read your writing i love the sound of your voice but then this whole conversation is being getting what's inside your head, outside your head, through that magical voice of yours. So it's been a magical conversation. I, you know, every part, it's almost like every podcast I do, I just get more and more interesting people. And the feedback I get was like, I thought the others were good, but this one was amazing. And I guarantee you that this one is going to be a favorite with everybody because I'm going to, I know when we get it edited, I'm going to have to sit down and listen to it a couple of times, especially Listen to that line about peering across the, what was that? Peering across oh, yeah. the species barrier. Yeah. Um, have you have you watched My Octopus Teacher yet? No, I don't know about that at all. Do you have Do you have Netflix? I do. Oh, my goodness, you haven't seen My Octopus Teacher. So tonight you're going to sit down, you're going to watch a, a Netflix show called My Octopus Teacher. Speaking of peering across the species barrier... I'll just leave that with you for your homework. But um, thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure, as I knew it would be. And uh, I'm sure everybody listening will get a lot out of this. Well, I can't thank you enough. And, you know, if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be here. I'd never have set foot on this incredible path. 
Um, so it's really, really lovely to be able to talk about it. And um, let's do it again. It was fun. Oh, yeah, there's, there's more conversation to be had here. Um, I think I'll end that with, uh, I get, you know, I get emails from people that, that say, you know, thank you so much. And, you know, if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be on this path or whatever. And my bog standard reply to that is I'm humbled to be part of your journey. Well, that's a beautiful thing. And I love that we are part of each other's journey. And what could be better than that? Yes, well, thank you so much for being a part of mine and thanks so much for joining us here on the podcast. So you guys listening at home, I'm sure you uh, have just loved this conversation I've had with Tanya. Uh, Don't forget to join us next time on another episode of The Journey On Podcast. Thanks for listening to The Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 650 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.